Uh, I guess we're going. Talk Recorded live. Vic doesn't give a shit, everybody. He just hits play and makes us go. <laughs> What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures, week two of the Nightmare on Elm Street re- uh, retrospective, which means it's time for Freddy's Revenge. What's going on, Blake? Not much, man. Ready to get this stuff going. How about you guys? Y'all ready for this? Dude, I watched it this morning, so it's as fresh as fresh you can get in my mind. So I'm ready for this, man. I'll tell you what, I'm even more ready for it than I was last week. Because last week, you know, I've seen Nightmare so many times, I didn't even get to watch it to prepare. But I have since watched it, so that gives us a chance to throw out our ratings from uh, last week. So um, Vic didn't even get to talk really last week. So Vic, can you talk about the original Nightmare on Elm Street and what your rating is, sir? Uh, Sure. Well, first of all, I said I was starting the show, and y'all just kept on talking, so I had to just, you know, throw my weight around a little bit. We were flirting. Leave us alone. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, there's not really much much for me to say about the original. I mean, I think it's it's beyond the classic. Um, It's one of really the only movies I like in the series. because uh, everybody, everybody in the world knows I'm my big Freddy guy, but I did put uh, Robert Robert England as my number one horror uh, actor ever in our li- top ten list. We did, so I'm just gonna go throw it out there. It's a four out of four to me all day today. Very good. All right, Blake, you're the man of the hour. You're the man of the uh, retrospective. So I'll let you. Uh... And, you know, we, we all know that we're all going to say we love it. So if you just want to give some thoughts that maybe you haven't thrown out yet about the original Nightmare on Elm Street and then throw out your rating and your amount of Freddy gloves. Okay. Um, yeah, there's not a whole lot that hasn't already been said about uh, uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. It came along at a time when horror was going through sort of a down period. You know, we had a... Uh, uh, we we had just had the fourth uh, Friday the Thirteenth, which was in my opinion one of the best. It had come out, and then we we really didn't have it. We didn't have a Halloween movie going at the time. We didn't have Hellraiser. We didn't really have a uh, we didn't really have a Texas Chainsaw movie that year, really. So uh, it was kind of like the perfect year to do that. And you know, it just it, it broke a lot of barriers. It, it brought that rubber reality concept back into horror, which I've seen that used. Uh, time and again in a lot of the more modern horror films, and I mean, there's not a whole lot to say. Wes created one of the most popular cinematic maniacs in history. I mean, I put Freddy Krueger right up there with the Phantom of the Opera, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Go lay down. All those guys. Sorry, I'm yelling at dogs. I apologize. That's all right. Uh, But yeah, it just created an indelible character, you know, and it was a unique look. There's never been anybody since then that, that looked and gave a presentation like that, and it was just a classic because there was nothing else like it. Um, it's, there's really not a whole lot I can say. Uh, Lord knows I've done all my talking my whole life on Night Run Elm Street, so uh, I'd give it a four out of four. Uh, like you I, you guys probably figured I would. Uh, it's it's a classic. It only gets better with age, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's not a whole hell of a lot more to say than that. Freddy Krueger is a cinematic badass, and one of my favorite... Um, Slashers ever, and you know, our franchise made a pretty damn good amount of money to date as well. So it's pretty, pretty uh, successful and you know, prolific. So, uh, yep, four out of four for me. And uh, what are your thoughts, Travis? Well, hey, this um, is Jack Shoulder, I'm there's the in. man. What is going on, Jack? It's nice to talk to you, sir. Hey, glad to be here. Hey, well, Jack. We're talking so much. 
we're talking Nightmare on Elm Street 2 tonight, and, you know, who better to talk about it than the man who uh, directed uh, the movie? And, you know, every time I talk to a director uh, or somebody that's involved with the uh, second incarnation of, of a series, I, I'm always curious, um, you know, how do you get contact? Who contacts you? How, how did that come up? And just basically the process by which you ended up taking over this film. Well, it's... Uh... <clears throat> It's actually not not quite as interesting as as all that. Probably most most people know that Wes was supposed to originally direct it. He never liked David Chaskin's script. And about six weeks or so before they were going to start to shoot the film, Wes decided to back out. Um, he he said the, the main thing he didn't like about the script was the fact that Freddie appeared um, not in a dream. You know, which which he felt sort of violated his his concept, and uh, you know, I had I had a long association with with New Line Cinema. You know, since since the very very early days um, when they were starting out, and I you know I I knew Bob Shea very well. We were very close friends. I did all the trailers for New Line, and eventually I did Alone in the Dark, which was pretty much the the, the first movie that they did all all on their own, and Bob always used to, um, I was sort of part of his brain trust. Uh, uh, so whenever he would think about a new film or something like that, he and there was a screening, he'd always invite me, ask me what I thought. And he had, uh, I, I had read the, the script for Elm Street before he, he made it, and I, I, I probably read a couple of drafts of it. And then, I, uh, ironically, I, I just happened to be out in Los Angeles um, Maybe for the first time, I'm I'm not quite sure, but uh, I was out in Los Angeles uh, on the day that they were filming the the Upside Down Room when when uh, Wes and and uh, Jack Haken, the DP, were strapped into those uh, sort of flight chairs and turned upside down, and um, um, and so and I'd also seen some cuts of the film. Uh, so I kind of knew what it was all about, and and when Wes dropped out, they offered it to me. And I honestly, I wasn't sure I wanted to do a sequel to somebody else's horror film that I thought that I should just be doing original material. And a friend of mine said, "Hey, you know, the film's going to make a lot of money, and when it does, you're going to have a career as a film director." And he was right, uh, you know. And so I. Uh, you know, I kind of thought about it. And I thought, well, you know, nobody's, um, you know, I've been offered anything else lately, so I, sh- I should do this, and and that's kind of how I got into it. So it it wasn't like I worked on the script, or I had a lot of time to really develop it, or I had a lot of time to think about it. Um, you know, I just basically there was a script. I did. I had a little influence on the script, but but not a lot, and I basically just jumped in and tried to get the movie made. Um, you know. Probably my my major contribution, you know, other other than actually interpreting the script and directing it, uh, is that uh, they they didn't want to bring um, um, Robert England back. They they you know at at that time you kind of had these faceless kind of stunt people who were who were playing the monsters in these films, and. Mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Robert was asking for more money, and they didn't want to pay him more money. 
um, just kind of like on an ego level, they thought he was trying to take advantage of them. And I said, you know, I I think uh, you really got to get him back because he's Freddy Krueger, you know, and he he brings something to this character that nobody else can can bring. And, and they had no idea that that the franchise was really Freddy. Um, in fact, those of you who may have seen the original poster, um, he's Freddy's not in the poster. There's there's Kim and 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 uh, uh, you know and uh, and there's a and, and Mark Patton and a big bird, you know. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'll tell you what. You talked touched on so many things right there that I do want to touch on one thing. They didn't realize how big it was going to be, obviously, but at the same time, you know. Uh, they did, you know, there were people telling you it was going to make a lot of money. So did that come along? Was there any kind of pressure come, that came along with it? Or was it one of those things where it's like, um, I'm golden. This is one of those things where I can kind of sit back and be in the driver's seat and just have a good time with it. Well, at that time, this was, uh, what, 1982, I think. Um, sequels were not looked upon the way they're looked upon now. Uh, you know, now... You expect the sequel is going to be better than the original, um, or or at least as as good. Um, but but back then, the idea of a sequel it was just a way to like squeeze a little more money out of a movie that had made some some money. So it was always less than. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the only the only sequel that that anybody really had any any respect for was well, um, you know, God, Godfather Two and. and uh, uh, Star Wars, but of course those were both made by the original directors. So the expectation from New Line was that the sequel would make seventy, you know, seventy to eighty percent of what the original made. So it was basically a business investment. Okay, well we'll we'll spend more money than we spent on the original. I think they spent two million dollars. I think the original was one million dollars. Uh, they spent two million dollars. And and they figured that even though it cost them a little bit more, they would, um, you know, make enough money. Uh, and and I don't think they really cared that that much. I mean, New Line and and Bob Shea really did care about their their product. It wasn't like you know, let's just crank out some shit and who cares? They mm-hmm. they they really did care about trying to make good films, but. Um, they did not have a sense that they were that that the original was a classic or or anything like like that. They were just just trying to make some money, and and basically, um, money was the last thing on my mind. I I I was given uh, a script that was very complicated. Uh, I had six weeks to 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 prepare for it, which is very little time. They gave me a list of like. Five single space pages of special effects, or like 200 separate little special effects, out of which I knew how to do about five. And basically, I had a panic attack. You know, I thought, oh shit, you know, I'm never going to get through this. I'm going to die. And so um, I was basically just trying to survive. Um, interesting thing is, you know, I worked very, very, very hard preparing the film and, and meeting with people, and, you know, I felt good about the cast. and and actually, as soon as I showed up on on the set on the first day, and the camera starts to roll, uh, you know, everything I, I I immediately relaxed, and and I had a pretty good time. Um, 
you know, I had a fun cast, and uh, Jacques Haken, guy who shot the original, was was shooting this one, and and uh, you know, so so I actually felt pretty good about it. But um, you know, mo- money never figured in. The, the The movie opened up, and it made more money than the first one. It made, you know, I think fifty percent more than the first one, and so that kind of woke everybody up. I mean, the interesting thing is that when they were going to sell the film, that uh, you know, when 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 we were in the editing stage, uh, they hired a publicist, and um, um, and the publicist said, you know, I think the angle on how to sell this film is to to say that it's about Freddie, because there had been some article somewhere that he read that said Freddie was the scariest man in America, and and there was a, a that there'd been a screening of a midnight screening somewhere in like Michigan or Wisconsin or who knows where, and people had actually shown up dressed up as Freddie, and so he had this idea that Freddie should, um, uh, you know, be the way that they sold sold the film, not actually believing that that was really what was true but that it was just a good angle to sell the film and that what he needed to do was to try to promote the idea that Freddie was the scariest guy in, in America. And um, uh, so they organized the screening, a midnight screening at, at some movie theater down in Greenwich Village, and they hired some people to dress up like Freddie. And when they got there, there were other people who they hadn't hired who were dressed up as Freddie. And that kind of like they said, hmm, what's going on here? Because it, uh, the the thing that they had sort of cynically predicted turned out to actually be true. And, and it, it, it's it it's funny how that works. Really understood that that's what it was all about. Yeah, absolutely. Blake, jump in here. I don't want to take over the entire thing. Go ahead, buddy. Uh, well, first off, thank you very much for agreeing to come on, Jack. I'm a huge fan of your work. I love to learn in the dark. I love the kitten and pretty much everything you've done. So it's really a supreme honor to have you know you and your insight on the uh, show. Now, I did want to uh, say one other thing, and I don't think a lot of Nightmare fans realize it, but uh, you were talking about earlier they wanted to have a stuntman take over for Robert England because they didn't want to you know come up off his request for more pay. I don't think a lot of people realize it, but one of the scenes in the film was left in the shower scene. That's not Robert England in all that makeup. That's that stunt guy because he, right. he has sort of shuffle and, and walk. And I tried to tell some people that, and they were like, that's totally Robert England. I was like, uh, not quite. <laughs> so it's like the only scene I can think of in the film that was left in from that stunt guy's short tenure on set. Uh, is that accurate? Was that the only scene that was left in? Yes. Um, uh, what happened was they they finally made a deal. Um, they they uh, uh, you know came to me uh, about I don't know a week or two might have been even just a week before they uh, we we started shooting the movie and they said well we we made a deal with with Robert and he's going to be in the movie and I said wow that's that's fantastic uh, and they said. Uh, the only problem is is that he's already he already took another job, and he's not going to be available until the second week or or you know something like like that, and so you're just going to have to use a stuntman in the meantime. Um, 
And so I said, well, all right, you know. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like I had a whole lot of choice there. And um, so they they got this. Uh, I don't even think he was a stuntman. I think he was like an extra. Um, I mean, he was just a guy who they were paying like 50 bucks a day. And, and, um, um, and ironically, I had gone to a theater production, uh, like, uh, two weeks before the film started and, and I look over and there's Robert England in the audience. And so during the intermission, I ran over and he and I started talking like, like crazy, uh, and you know if 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 uh, you know Robert he he can definitely talk you know he's he's yes, uh, very very verbal uh, and so he and I talked like rapid rapidly for the ten minutes of the uh, the intermission and then you know went went back in and I didn't see him again until the day that we started shooting but the 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 extra that they'd hired. Um, I mean, basically, they were looking for somebody who, who would basically fit into his outfit. I mean, that was, that was the uh, requirement for the actor to play Freddy Krueger was that he fit the costume, you know. And um, and uh, so the guy, uh, and he kept doing that stupid walk, and I said, you know, stop acting like a monster, you know, because Freddy. <laughs> Like a monster, he acted like a really like a man who was really strong and powerful and in charge, and 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 I kept trying to you know get him to stop uh, doing that. You know, fortunately there was a lot of smoke and a lot of other stuff, um, uh, but um, yeah, I mean he was he was pretty lame. And then when when Robert showed up the next week, when we shot, uh, I think it was. Uh, the second week we shot all all the stuff at Lisa's house, and uh, 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 he showed up. And as soon as we did the first scene, it was like, wow, boy, this guy is really good. I mean, he he's just got this presence and a physical a physicality about him, and uh, you know, it was night and day. And I mean, that's why that's I think the main reason why why the series is a success. Yeah. Um, Blake, I got to jump in here with one question for him because he's talked about working with Robert England. I got to get outside the Nightmare series real quick because, okay, I could name off all sorts of people you worked with, but I do have to ask you, what was it like working with Donald Pleasance? And, of course, that was a little more recent than, than that Nightmare movie, but, I mean, just the fact that you got to work with him is amazing. Yes. Uh, actually, um, certainly one of the best experiences I ever had. Uh I mean, we had this amazing cast. I mean, we had Donald Pleasance and Martin Landau and Jack Palance and, you know, Dwight, Dwight Schultz, who was, mm-hmm. you know, a really fine actor as well. But, but I, I was a huge fan of Donald Pleasance. You know, a lot of the English movies that he did, some of the, the Harold Pinter stuff that he did, uh, Roman Polanski, I, I thought he was one of the great actors in the English language. And so when I found out he was in the film, I mean, I, 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 I was just thrilled. And um, he, he, he worked on the second day of Alone in the Dark. And I'd never met him. And, uh, and I was kind of nervous 
and and so on on the second day in the morning, you know, there he was, and I met him, and and you know, he was very cordial, and and we did the first scene, and we rehearsed the scene, and and, and I was watching the scene, and my mind just went totally blank. I had no idea what was going on, and so I I kind of paused and I said, uh, "Gee, that was really great. Why don't Why don't we do it again?" And and so we did the scene again, and I was able to actually focus on it, and and I had uh, I had uh, a couple of thoughts about the scene, and I said, "Donald, you know, you think we could maybe?" And he said, "Yeah, sure, okay." And 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 he did what I asked him to do. You know, it was like being in a Ferrari, you know. Feel a quarter of three and it's you know, and uh, and I thought, hey, this is this is actually pretty good, you know, you know, here I am with this world class actor, and I I give him a direction, and and he actually listens to me, you know, and he actually does it, so this is it's actually pretty good. So so that was um, um, we if if you know Alone in the Dark, there's there's the scene where he meets uh, uh, Doctor Potter in his office. And I had, I had worked this scene out, and uh, I, I had kind of planned it all out, and he was going to stand up on this line, and he was going to walk over to the window on that line, and he was going to walk over this way, and then he was going to sit down on this line. And I had all this sort of complicated bullshit that, that I had worked out. Um, and, and we rehearsed the scene, and I gave him all that stuff. And he kind of tried to do it, and he said to me, uh, you know I imagine scene as sort of like the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland, and then I would just be sitting on the floor on a big cushion with a hookah. <laughs> and, and I thought for a second, and I thought, you know, that's a much better idea than my idea, but I completely panicked because, you know, it was like my second day on my first movie. And I had everything all planned out, and suddenly he'd just taken my whole plan and basically ripped it up and thrown it in the trash. And so I had to come up with another idea, but he actually made it a whole lot easier. And uh, so anyway, it was it it was it was really uh, fantastic to have the opportunity to work with somebody like that. And he was a nice man. Yeah, I mean, I think. I speak for everybody when, you know, everybody in the community is a huge fan of his. But, Blake, again, I don't want to take all of his time, so I'll let you jump in again, buddy, because I know we're limited here, and he's a busy man. He is very busy. It was great. It was very gracious, and he's very gracious to take time out of his insane schedule. I've, I've known a few filmmakers, and it's like they, they rarely sleep. They're about as bad as the uh, special effects crew. They keep psychotic hours. But, uh I just want to say thank you very much, Jack. I mean, like I said, I've been a huge fan of yours since I was a, a child. Your your nightmare that you directed was the second nightmare film that I ever saw, but it was my favorite. And, you know, growing up, I kind of felt that whole dichotomy that uh, Mark Patton had with Clue, you know, on there because, you know, I grew up in like a really turbulent household. I had a drunken stepfather who all he knew how to do was womanize and mistreat his children. So it's like I kind of got to look at somebody else's nightmare instead of my own for a little bit. So I want to thank you for, you know, taking time and being a part of the legacy and then again, you know, coming on here. Because like I said, it's not every day you get to talk to one of your favorite directors. It's pretty surreal. So I wanted to thank you for, you know, coming on and speaking about, you know, the film and your other experiences. I really, really appreciate it. Well, uh, uh, you know, you make these films, and the reason that I 
got into this really was because I watched a lot of films that really had a lot of effect on me and my life and how I felt and and so I was hoping I could do that for other people and uh so you know it's 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 nice nice to find out that 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 what you really put a lot of work in put your heart and soul into you know somehow carries across to other people so i'm 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 actually grateful to all of you for for being fans so um any any other questions well uh, do you did you uh, i don't know if you you're familiar obviously you were part of the documentary and i I own the documentary the never sleep again documentary were you aware that uh the glove that went missing on the set of nightmare two was found you know in i guess it was twenty ten a guy on the documentary bought the glove, so it's been found oh really. Yeah, I paid like six hundred fifty dollars for it on online. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really. I I uh, to to tell you the truth, I don't even remember if it went missing. A lot of times, people don't tell me what's going on. If you're the director, they sort of don't want to give you bad news, so they probably had a second glove. Um, oh, they they had another one, but I mean that was the whole point. Like halfway through the film, I know you remember because you. You filmed it. It was a brilliant piece of, you know, cinematography. But uh, halfway through the movie, Freddie has the the claws actually come out of his skin, and I think that was because the glove was still missing at that point. Or Bob Shea actually cleaned the glass at lunch. I think that, you know, you guys were filming out there at uh, Southern California, out there at the side of the school. And um, he said, well, it seems like as though one of our props has gone missing, and I really would appreciate you guys returning it. And as a matter of fact, if it's not back on the prop truck by the end of lunch, your heads are going to fucking roll. And it happens to be Freddy Krueger's glove, and they never they never actually got it back. I think Robert Rustler is the one that told that, uh, told that story. But uh, apparently the original glove used on the set never came back. Uh, to that set, so this guy he bought it, and uh, I guess David Miller and a couple other guys that worked on the other films looked at it, and apparently it's the it's the right one. So I don't know how he and I don't know if the guy that he bought it from was the one that took it or what, but apparently it's been found, and it's like I said, he paid like six hundred fifty dollars for it, and uh, it's beat to hell. It doesn't even have the same Wells Lamont leather glove. It's like all been replaced. But I just I think that's awesome that some really weird stuff like that happened on the uh, set of the movie. You know, since it's a horror movie, it's kind of cool that some some things like that happened. And uh, I remember Robert telling a story, but I don't know if you remember it or not, where the uh, the end where Lisa confronts him in the uh, at the uh, power plant and he burns. Apparently, that wasn't Robert Englund like at all. That was a totally animatronic puppet thing that Kevin Yeager built. Is that true? That was all animatronic. Uh, it was made out of wax. Right, right. Like a, melt- like sort of the melting part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there, uh, there was a little bit of an animatronic thing. Um, I mean, at at that that you know, the next film that I did was The Hidden, where I use also used Kevin. I mean, I was the guy that 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 basically discovered Kevin. Um, you know, I was looking at, um, at, uh, people's, uh, a makeup artist's books and, um, because New Line 
wasn't really uh, happy with with the, the makeup in the original Freddy, and they wanted to do it a little bit differently. And um, there are there are a lot of these these guys who uh, you know do this who were people who've been reading Fangoria since they were five years old, and 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 uh, and they're really really into all of that stuff. Uh, the thing about Kevin is Kevin Kevin was a an art major in college. I think he was a sculptor. And he had this book, and what, what really impressed me was he had these pictures of this old guy in the park. And the old guy was interacting with various people in the park, uh, little kids and, you know, just people in the park. And it turned out the old guy was actually a young guy who was in makeup. And, and, and none of these people knew it. I mean, that, that it was so lifelike that that nobody knew he was in makeup, and uh, for me, I, I thought that was that that that's what really sold me on him. Um, that that he was kind of very subtle and 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 really skilled. But what happened was um, right um, right around the the time that we were doing Elm Street Two, we were still into a kind of a a level of of prosthetics and stuff that weren't. That, that looked kind of really fake. Like, I think for the time, people thought they looked pretty good. But when when we did The Hidden, the very last shot uh, that we did of The Hidden was in the hospital where the creature goes from, from uh, 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 into, into Bill Boyette, the old guy. And Kevin said that he'd gotten, there was this new material that they were now using that was much more lifelike, this latex thing, where they could take a much finer uh, imprint of a person's face. And, the, and, and he did a head for, for that actor, and it, it absolutely looked like his head. I mean, uh, the level of, of lifelike quality between the stuff from Nightmare and the head that he did for this was kind of like a quantum leap ahead. Um, and, and now, of course, uh, I mean, the, uh, I mean, I, I've, and this was even like 10 or 12, this was actually right around the year 2000, but that was about 15 years, 12, 12 13 years after that. Um, and I, I went to a makeup shop, and I mean, there were these bodies there that they could have gotten up and walked around. I mean, they were absolutely perfectly lifelike. Every little stubble of hair in their face, every hair, I mean, they were absolutely perfectly like, lifelike. If I'm not mistaken, Jack, didn't you work on a film with uh, well, one of my friends, is a special effects artist, his name is Steve Johnson. Didn't you work with him yeah. on a, you know, called Arachnid? Yeah, yes. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, he was he was the guy that 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 built this uh, amazing uh, eight foot alien spider. Yeah, that was actually the place where where I saw some of those. He had a couple of these uh, bodies that he had made for uh, I don't know what what the film was, but but they were they were astonishingly good. He's he's top notch. He's really really good. Well, I'll have to be sure and let him know that you spoke fondly of him. Steve is a really good friend of mine, and he was on the show uh, 
a few a uh, few months ago talking about you know his career, and then I think he's going to come back on and do Nightmare Four's retrospective since he was responsible for the uh, the Chest of Souls, you know, very end of film, you know, him Freddy getting ripped apart by all the souls. But yeah, I mean, I definitely like love your choice in special effects uh, artist because Kevin Yeager, I mean, he went on to design Chucky for the Child's Play movie, he designed the Crypt Keeper for uh, Tales from the Crypt, and then I think he also did the the Hamburger Helper. Uh, hand, the little glove, so uh, he's had a pretty prolific career, and I'm sure he has to thank, you know, you to thank for all that, so fantastic job, like I said, I love your choice, and uh, The Hidden was a gem, it's like one of my favorite films, I'm just surprised, it's got a good cult status, but I'm surprised it, like, isn't right up there with, like, Cocoon, or, you know, some of these other ones, because I love the first one, I saw the sequel, and... I just I didn't like it as much. The first one was just so new and like, you know, awesome. Like literally, you put that out in '87, and and uh, Freddy's Revenge came out in '85. So just in two years, the special effects and the quality of the cinematography improved like super dramatically. I mean, I'm not picking I'm not picking at you. You're a genius. I mean, I love your work. I'm just saying, just the, the quality of the things used in film, just even in two years' time, it's amazing. Yeah. You know how much they improve. Yeah. I mean, when uh, when I look when I look at um, you know Elm Street, you know it, it, it there's a certain handmade quality to it. You know, it it, it doesn't have the kind of refinement that uh, even uh, uh, you know going from from Elm Street to to uh, the Hidden, we uh, we really took a step up. But um, uh, 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 kind of a funny story here, which is. Uh, I had mentioned that list of all the special effects, uh, and you know there were there were you know I think 198 or so, something like that, and 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 there were already these these uh, producers who who had been working on on the film, Michael Murphy and Joel Soisson, and and they said, oh, we've got this great guy. His name is Dick Albain, and and Dick Dick is uh, Dick has done thousands of special effects and. He'd been the head of the special effects department at, I think, 20th Century Fox, and he he had a long, long, illustrious career, and he he was kind of an old timer. Um, yeah, yeah, he worked on some of the stages stuff. Well, yeah, actually, actually, when I I, I I was talking to him, I mean, he'd already been hired, so I didn't get to hire him, but I said, so of all the stuff that you've worked on, you know, what are you the most proud of? And he thought a minute, and he said. I think the work I did with the Three Stooges, which probably should have made me nervous, you know. But uh, uh, as, as a matter of fact, he he actually told me uh, Mo um, that Mo was a real ladies' man, and they would kind of travel around and they they'd, they'd like go into a town, and uh, you know, within a couple of days, Mo be sleeping with the mayor's wife, you know. <laughs> which <laughs> that's fantastic. But, yeah, they real ladies. Uh, and and so so Dick Dick had all of these these tricks that were all like thirty years old. Like uh, there's this stuff called AB smoke. So the way it works is there's there's two different substances. So for instance, you put substance A on a doorknob, and you put substance B on somebody's hand. And they grab the doorknob, and the A and the B meet. Smoke comes out. It looks like you know, looks like the the knob is smoking. 
and and he had all of these kind of these. Uh, uh, one of the things that he was, he also worked on the TV series I Dream of Jeannie, and okay. and yeah. he 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 was very proud of the fact that every single effect on Dream of Jeannie, they never used an optical effect; they were all done physically. Um, and uh, um, uh, so he would, you know, a lot of these gags that would use monofilament and stuff like that. Um, and uh, the very first, the very first day of Elm Street was we were shooting the bus going through the desert, um, and I had um, uh, we'd been scouting. And we were out out in the high desert, um, looking for places where we could shoot that sequence, and um, and we actually found this this town. It was kind of a new town, and there was kind of a real estate development that was right in the desert. So that basically, if you look to your left, there was this whole sort of um, you know uh, new little suburbia. And at one point, it just stopped. And if you look to the right, there was just desert. It just, the suburbia stopped and the desert started. And so I thought this is great because there's actually a shot where you see the bus going through this sort of suburbia street. And then it suddenly you pan the bus and it's in the middle of the desert. And that actually happened. But, but we, were, we were scouting to look for a place to shoot some of the other stuff. And we're like driving along, and there are all these Joshua trees, you know, which are these kind of very interesting-looking things. And I, I, I kind of, I suddenly got this instinct, and I said, "Make a left over here." I said, "Turn up this road here." And I, I don't know why I said it, but we we turned up the road, and we went about a, I don't know, a mile, and and there had been a a uh, a fire, and there were all these Joshua trees, but they were all blackened. And I thought, wow, you know, this this is the perfect, the perfect location. So, uh, so there was this 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 thing where the the bus is supposed to um, uh, hit a hit a rock and come to a stop, and the wheel is supposed to the front wheel is supposed to come off the the bus. And so he said, I've got this thing. I said, I've got the best idea I ever had in in my life. This this is what what Dick said. He said. I've, I, and I've got this thing, and this is going to be the best, the best gag I ever did. This wheel's going to come off. He said, I, I got this great idea. And, and basically what his idea was, was he was going to take the axle of the bus, and he was going to um, put threads on it. And then he was also going to put, he was going to tap the wheel with threads. But so that when you hit the brake, basically the wheel would, would, uh, unscrew itself from the axle. If that makes any sense. It does, and that's a very nightmarish, uh, very nightmarish sequence. Uh, I did want to mention one thing, and I don't know if you were part of the process for, the, for all of the casting or not. But uh, a couple of years ago, I started work on my own uh, on Elm Street book, and I got in touch with uh, a friend I made when I was real, real young, Mark Patton, who obviously played uh, Jesse Walsh. But he told me that uh, he beat out several other actors for the. Uh, the role, and he named off some that were just unbelievable. Christian Slater, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, like they all tried out. Were you a part of that? Did you? I mean, were you a part of that process? Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I, well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I was the one that 
that did it. Uh, you know, I've heard that, and I would have to go back. I think I have all of the casting stuff in a book, and um, I, I'm going to tomorrow because I don't have the book here. I have it in my office, but uh, I'm going to have to go back because I. I, I think I have uh, you know my notes for all the casting sessions, and I should go and see who actually showed up. That would be fantastic. Like I said, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I've been working on these two nightmare books. One of them is a is like a novel that's supposed to be a sort of like a prequel to the original, and then the other one is sort of like from the uh, cast and crew, special effects, you know, and people behind the scenes standpoint. Because I think too much focus is put on Robert. I mean, obviously Robert's great, and everybody else is great, but the director, the the uh, DP and all the other people behind the scenes, special effects guys, you guys, and, and all the other you know crew bring the film to life. So I think you deserve as much credit, if not more, than Robert and all the rest of them. So that would be fantastic. If you want to message me tomorrow uh, with what you find out, I mean, I'll just I'll fill the guys in. And uh, this, these podcasts get heard like they're they're kind of global, so this is going to reach like a pretty large audience. Our last show we had. Uh, bunch of people from the original film so every week we're doing every monday like a retrospective and this is just like i said this is such a treat because i had on some guests last week that were like some childhood you know legends i loved and of course i loved all of your work so really you kind of made a, a fanboy's dream come true i appreciate that oh um, i'm 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 very happy to have been able to to help out um and uh I guess I will probably uh, unless unless you have any other questions I'll I'll sign off and uh, okay okay I mean like I said I know you stayed on longer than you initially wanted to I'm still waiting I haven't heard back from Robert Russell or from Clue so I don't know what the status on them uh, doing this is I'm just going to assume that as, as late as it is now they're probably not they probably you know are not going to do it but I appreciate you you know reaching out to them like I did that means a lot I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of surprised I didn't hear back from any of them. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised, but anyway, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm glad to, uh, that uh, that I got a chance to talk to you about this. And and uh, uh, you know, like I said, I'm 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 always very grateful to, to people who are fans of 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 my films. You know, and it's just the people that I that I really aim the films for, and you know, it's 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 great to have a group of people that really like like the work. So thank you very much. My my pleasure. And I will, I will uh, uh, if uh, if you don't hear back from me about the casting thing, shoot me an email and I'll I'll uh, uh, remind me to look it up. Anyway, oh, I, def- I definitely will, Jack. Thank you. Okay, take care and, and thanks everybody. Bye bye. Jack, you're awesome. Take care. And I tell you what, Blake, that was a hell of a guest. Good job. Um, you know, we were right in the, the middle of uh, talking about the first one, and then he came on and just blew it away. I mean, great job pulling him. It, he was awesome. It was really cool to get him. I had to I had to stray from the Nightmare series to hear him That's talk okay. about Donald I did, too, because I love The Hidden, and I love The Lone of the Dark. And, of course, you know, I, I, one of my favorite films of all time is John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. And uh, yes. Donald Pleasance was in that, too, as the... Uh, the uh, minister, the, uh, you know, reverend-type uh, figure in that film. Yeah. So, uh, oh, yeah, he was a great guest. And like I said, I'm just sorry I didn't have more people come on. I emailed everybody he emailed. And like I said, I mean, he's been touching base with me pretty 
regularly, so I was glad to help. Um, so I'm just excited about the shows, and I love this. This is my shit right here, man. I love it. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'll tell you what. Now it's my turn to talk about the original Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, I, I mean, what the hell can I say at this point? You know what I mean? I love the Survivor Girl. I love the cast as a whole. I mean, and Johnny Depp's in it. You've got Heather Langenkamp, who I love. I love Nancy. Um, Tino's great. She looks good at her age now, even. She looks fantastic. Um, yes, she does. And, and then, and then everybody else was effective too. I really didn't have a problem with anybody. That movie, it, it, you know, it's it's it reeks of '80s cheese, and I have no problem with that when I watch it now. But at the same time, there's still a whole level of creepiness to it, you know, uh, which is really hard to do for a movie for its time. But um, I, I, that, and as far as movies like that go, and as far as the series goes, to me, it's a perfect movie. It's a 4.0. You know, four four machetes out of four. I, I, you really couldn't give it anything lower than that. If you did, I, I would wonder what was wrong with you. I mean, Robert England was great. Uh, Wes Craven's direction was amazing. I mean, there's just really not too many knocks I could have on this movie. I could nitpick stupid things, but, I mean, overall, it, there are so many iconic moments. This is God. Uh, or his face pressing through the wall. Or, or the, you know, the uh, the bed shooting water out of it. Uh, bloody water at that. Just so many different things in the, in the original Nightmare on Elm Street that, I mean, it's been talked to death. So, I mean, we can move on to the second Nightmare on Elm Street. And, Vic, are you still around, sir? Yeah. All right. Do you want to talk about the night, second Nightmare on Elm Street first? I mean, I can't. I haven't watched it in probably, God uh, damn it, 20 years, probably. Damn. Wow. Has it been that long for you, sir? It's been a long time. Well, you're going to have to revisit it with me sometime, just, you know, to be able to see it. And I'll tell you, it's one of those movies that I think you can sit there and laugh at and laugh with, but still enjoy it. But we'll get to it. Vic, do you, do you have any memories of this movie? I mean, we'll get back to it uh, at a later date for your, you know, up-to-date opinion. Not really, man. Um, I, I wasn't. Uh, I do know I wasn't a big fan of it, but I mean, I don't really want to sit here and talk bad about it because it's been a long time since I've seen mm. it. Uh, all right, well, I'll tell you what, Blake, you talked about, you know, with the director uh, that it was your favorite. Is it still? Is it still your favorite of the series? It is. Uh, I know that that's going to be a tragedy for people that. Uh, <laughs> that want to be like, well, you're supposed to love the original first. I love the original. Nothing can top the original. But for me, the, the context of the film and in the way it was shot spoke a lot to me, almost more so than the original. The whole conflict between Jesse Walsh and his father. Uh, you know, you, you and Vic know the story. Growing up, I, I, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy what I had to deal with growing up. Hearing loss, broken nose, um, you know, you name it, I had it done to me. Um, and uh, it just, I, 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 I sympathized and I, and, I, and I felt empathy towards Jesse and his relationship with his, uh, with his father and just trying to fit in and find his sort of, uh, you know, place in, in the world. And, um, you know, the film is a product of its time. Uh, a lot of people, and I'm going to quote Jack Shoulder here because, uh, you know, I think I think he would be all right with me doing it. He even said it years later. I simply did not have the self-awareness to realize that any of this would be interpreted as being gay because there's that unspoken. <laughs> people, 
people have talked to death. The whole, uh, he's inside me, he's trying to take me again, this and that. Freddie's supposed to represent, uh, you know, the, the homosexuality, you know, brimming at the surface, coming out. And he's supposed to represent the fear of coming out and all that. And be that as it may, you know, I, I have no problem with any of that. And now that I'm older, when I was a kid and I saw it, I wasn't... I wasn't privy to all that. I was a kid, for Christ's sake. I wasn't privy to, well, that's gay, you know, that's that's supposed to be interpreted as gay. Two guys can't visit in the same bedroom and not be, you know, I wasn't, I was just like, he went to his friend. You know, he tried to, you know, hook up with a girl and it didn't work and he felt bad and he wanted to go, you know, hang out with his friend and get some advice. It just happened to be he walked into his friend's bedroom. I mean, hey, Dawson's Creek, you know, made a whole show, a whole series about people going in and out of his bedroom window. So, I mean, hey, if it worked, if it'll work for them, then it can work for Nightmare on Elm Street. So, it just, it's a product of its time, and people were really weird about Mark Patton, and, you know, he's a really close friend of mine, probably even closer than Steve, which is hard for me to say, because Steve and I have bullshitted a lot over the years, but, um, he and I sat down for my first interview. I used to do interviews for a website called NightRunElmStreetFilms.com. It's like a companion website to the original seven films, you know, uh, you know, one through six, and then, of course, the West Craven's New Nightmare. And I talked to him about it, and, you know, he, he said that the backlash he received after that movie was part of what, part of what sent him scurrying out of the film industry. I mean, he left Hollywood right after not on Elm Street 2 came out. It came out November 1st of uh, 1985. Two and a half, three million dollar budget. Made 30 million, you know, at the box office. And uh, that was a hell of a lot back then for something that was on such a small budget. And, you know, he didn't really get to celebrate his success. So that's what he's doing now. And so, you know, he didn't join the show partly because he's off promoting his uh, movie, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which... I'm one of the producers for, uh, along with a bunch of other people that donated to his GoFundMe. We all got producer credit. So it was really nice to get to talk about the film with him. And, you know, it just, I know it's a little bit cheesy now and dated. And there are things certainly he doesn't like. The whole dancing with the, in the bedroom with with the glasses and the hat, he really doesn't. He really wishes that never would have made it onto the screen. Um, you know, because it's that that takes it over the top, and then of course the the, the coach and the shower with his bare ass being whooped by towels and tied up, and the gay the, the gay bar, you know, the leather bar and all that stuff. Which Bob Shay, you know, he played the bartender, <laughs> so it's it's kind of funny. But um, you know, it's just it's product of its time, and to me, it only gets better with age. And actually, in Europe, the film did surprisingly well, even better over there than it did in the states. Uh, a lot of gay magazines called it the premier gay horror film of the year in which it came out, and people still it's still shown in gay bars on horror movie mm-hmm. night all over the world. And and Mark Patton is openly gay, you know, and he was he was at the time. And part of his problem was that he was playing Jesse. He says I don't think Jesse was supposed to be a gay character. It just kind of happened out of serendipity. You know that that it that it came out that way. Chaskin, the one that, that Jack was talking about, that wrote the script and the treatment, he admitted much later that uh, there were intentionally gay subtext and, and, and things put in the film. You know, like the he's inside me, and you've got the body, I've got the brain, and the sweat, and the blood, and the underwear, and the dirty secret in the basement. It's all supposed to point towards the symbolism of somebody trying to come to terms with their own sexuality and 
let everyone else know what they are, you know, because coming out is an important thing to people that have tried to repress it. And I think it's important to be who you are. So sort of certainly his prevailing over Freddie, you know, and his father, really, uh, I felt that. And uh, it just, it, the movie still speaks to me on massive levels, and I love it. I just watched it with the wife and and the youngest uh, <laughs> there before yesterday. So I'm trying to try to savor those moments because in another, you know, couple months or year, and he won't be able to see anything Freddie without, you know, probably freaking out because as he gets older, he'll realize Freddie's not supposed to be the superhero he thinks he is. He's a bad guy. So, yeah. But that that's pretty much my soapbox, uh, you know, rant. I'm sorry. I just, I, I've seen the movie take a lot of flack over the years. and Look around your rating. You know, I mean, it's, it's a classic in its own right. It was the first, it was the first sequel to the original, and you know, I think the big problem people have with it is it broke Wes's rules that were established in the first film. Even when you think it's in reality, Freddy is always in a dream. And when they took him out and brought him out to the pool party, which we'll talk about the pool scene and some of the others, I'm sure here shortly. But uh, I, you know, that that broke the rules. And even Robert England himself said that broke the rules of what that Wes had said and bringing him out. And he's not sure if that hurt the film or not. To me, it didn't hurt it. To me, it just made it clear that Nancy vanquished his ass so badly that in order for him to come back dream into dreams, he was so overpowered by her that he had to seek a conduit in in real life and a, a waking person to bring his brand of terror back because he was vanquished so well by the final girl. So that's that's how I always interpret it. I don't really care for the people that want to talk bad about it. They can think what they want to think, but you know, that's that's what it is. I'm a nightmare fan through and through. Nothing will ever change that shit. So, <laughs> so you gave is it four out of four? For me, it's it's four out of four. Now you know okay. when we get to some of the other ones, there'll be a little bit of deviation, but definitely the first. The first two were definitely four out of four because there was nothing ever done like them before. I can't recall ever seeing a film where uh, Coach was strapped up, bare, you know, naked and slashed to death in the shower. I can't ever recall that ever happening before. That. So. Well, I've got a lot of thoughts on this movie. Um, some good, some bad. So I'm going to get into the good first. The good, um, when we get to see Freddy, and I mean really see Freddy, not just the stunt man walking around. We're talking about the Robert England Freddy. I like the way he looks in this movie. I think he looks scary as shit. Maybe as scary as he ever looked in any of them. Um, I, I thought it was really cool. And um, to continue on that path, you know, Blake, you talked about the rules that Wes set forth, and it's like, yeah, they're the rules that Wes set forth. But, I mean, it was established in one movie, so it's not like it, there was some long-running thing. It's not like Jason Goes to Hell where you had all these rules and then you just throw all that shit out the window after eight movies, you know? This is one movie in. And realistically, these rules are meant to be broken at this point because it's only the second movie. You know, sequels change True. things. True. But rapidly. I mean, remember the backstory. Wes didn't intend for this to be a franchise, and he shot those other endings with the Corvette in the first film to appease Bob Shea, who I have no disrespect for. Uh, he thought, you know, he believed in the movie so much he got the maid and launched a fucking empire out of it. So he's laughing all the way But, uh, you know, uh, it, I guess by that point, man, 
and their rules have been set, and it wasn't supposed to be a franchise, but the first one was so successful. And I think Bob Shea, I give him credit for that, because even Wes said later, you know, I, I didn't I didn't ever plan on making sequels. It was supposed to be standalone, the way that the original ending was filmed, which a lot of people don't know the original ending, but I do, and I've seen five endings. And uh, it would have changed the game. It would have made it standalone. So uh, even he gives credit to Bob because, you know, he ended up making some money off of it. There was a dispute between the two of them, and that's really one of the reasons he didn't work on Nightmare 2. He and Bob Shea had a falling out after the first one. And, uh, right, which is which is fine. But again, you know, yeah. uh, they're moving on, and I don't really feel like the, that the original rules have to apply here, especially considering, you know, that we don't even know what the hell happened in the first one at the end of it. Was it a dream? Was it not? And I, they kind of reestablished what actually happened there. Uh, from this one, and they were going to take it moving forward, and it's just the same thing with like with the Halloween franchise. Once John Carpenter dropped out, they had to do their own thing, which they did here with the Nightmare franchise. But let me just say, I like the story of um, Freddy trying to, and I'll get to the gay thing, but for now, let me just get to the part where he's having to use somebody to become a person. I mean, in reality, it makes sense, because, I mean, as the, the series goes along, Freddie's always having to use somebody, whether it's the you know the kids of Elm Street to remember him or whatever it is. He, he's always having to use somebody to do something because I mean Freddie's not much of anything if, if people don't believe in him or if they're not. He's not able to take control, and, and you know essentially he manifests that in this one, and that's why I think the beach scene's really or the pool scene's really cool. I actually enjoy that scene. A lot of people you know talk about it. I mean, there's a little bit of goofiness on, in the fact that everybody you know there's like 20 people there and they're all scared of one guy who doesn't have a gun or anything. But he was a scary looking motherfucker. I'd be scared too. He was scary as hell in this. And, and there's a lot. Of, and, yeah. and for people that say that this one, you know. Um, is I don't know, just completely different than the the others. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But I'll tell you this much: there's some iconic scenes in this. The bus scene. Um, Vic and I go to Georgetown Drive-In in our area, and they have Freddie driving a bus there around Halloween. So um, this this bus scene, you know, has stuck with I think a lot of people. Um, I remember, you know, like. Field of Screams, it's a haunted house, they have Freddy on the bus. So Freddy on the bus is kind of a, a theme for a lot of people. People remember that, and it's because of this movie. And then also, you know, um, the pool scene, like I said, it's a pretty iconic, where he cuts himself out of Mark Pat, you know, coming through his, his chest and all that. I think that's another cool scene. I think there's a lot of good things about this movie. That being said, um, okay, so here's... And I guess I'm kind of contradicting where I say the rules were established or, or were or weren't established, and then they changed it. But who cares? Here's my thing. Okay, the the the, the gay storyline. I have no problem with the gay storyline, but I do have a problem with it in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Which this is in retrospect because at the time, just like you, Blake, how the hell was I supposed to know? I was a kid. I saw it. I didn't pick up on anything. But when I watch it now, it's like. I feel like I'm being force-fed a, a gay movie, and I don't mean gay movie in terms of I'm offended by it or anything like that. It's just they're trying to get an agenda across in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, and that's where I have a problem with it. And again, the quality of the movie doesn't suffer so much. as It's just like it feels so weird to me to be watching a movie that's a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but they've got these undertones. It's like if it was a standalone movie, I would be perfectly fine with, but 
it's almost like people's problem with Halloween 3. It doesn't seem to sit in the franchise properly because you've got this movie that kind of goes off on its own in that way. So the gay undertones I don't have a problem with so much as I, I don't really care for it in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. But that being said, what they set out to accomplish, they do well. Um, so, uh, again, it's kind of a good news, bad news situation for me. Um this movie, I said there was a lot of cheese in the first one. This movie is chock full of cheese. This movie is cheese top to bottom. When I was watching it, it's one of those movies that you grab a beer and you laugh at, you laugh with, you enjoy it for what it is. It's not one of those you can take too seriously. I mean, there are scenes that can absolutely be taken seriously. And Blake, I, you know, I didn't. I, my dad and I clashed, but I didn't have, you know, obviously the issues that you had growing up. So I have a hard time, you know, um, identifying as much with Mark Patton and Clue Gilliger's, you know, clashes, but I get where you're coming from. I can understand how that would be tough or, or that would be something that somebody would relate to, certainly. But for me, I like the movie, but it's definitely not my favorite entry in the series. In fact, I, I think it's the weakest of all, you know, when I talk about the Mount Rushmore horror, I think there's Freddie, Jason, Michael Myers, and Leatherface. I think it's the weakest part two of the bunch. I like the, all the other part twos better. But I also love the other part twos like a whole lot. So it would be hard for this one to top them. But I don't think it's a bad movie. I'd put it two and a half out of four. Again, not bad. People people that knock this movie, I, I don't know what their problem with it is overall. I see little things, lots of things wrong with this movie. But it's just, it's still a fine sequel. And if you compare it up against most sequels, not against the other three I mentioned, it does pretty well, really. I mean, it might be a... I don't know if I'd put a top ten sequels all the time, but it's pretty close. It, it's not a bad sequel. It's just it's not my favorite, and, you know, um, I guess that's that. It, it's good. It, it's good. It's not as good as the first, but, I mean, that's... <laughs> which which sequel is? This is true. This is very true. I mean, that's hard. That's a hard call to make. But I mean, and I can appreciate your uh, your opinion. And, and yes, I didn't get the gay undertones and subtext until I was much older. But um, yeah. And as far as the the, the clashing thing goes, uh, it just like I said, I saw the kind of problematic relationship that Jesse had with his father, and um. Uh, I guess I just, I felt it on that level, I mean, because I'm I'm not going to lie, I mean, my, my stepdad called me everything but a child of God, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to use it. some of the certain words, but a lot of the words that you use that are derogatory towards homosexual people, he definitely said that was, you know, he definitely, you know, pointed those in my direction, anybody that watches this shit is this, this, and this, you'll grow up to be a serial killer, you'll never have a worthwhile life, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not having a worthwhile life right now, so what difference does it really make in the uh, the grand scheme of things, and it was a big deal for me to tell that to Mark, because, uh, like I said, growing up, that, that this all happened from the time I was like six years old till I was about 19, so during that whole time, like, you know, Jesse's portrayed as being about 16, 17 in the movie, so during those actual years of my life, I was feeling that still. So it's like, I guess that's why it resonated with me. I mean, I never could watch it at home. I would always have to go somewhere else and watch it because, you know, I was kept under close supervision um, for whatever reason. But I remember watching it a lot at my grandmother's house because she had a, a guest house in the back, and I used to stay back there, you know, and I'd go visit, and I had my own television. And, you know, she knitted me a Freddy sweater and all that kind of stuff. She she understood me, and um uh, 
you know, I just, I don't know, man. Just like I said, they connected with me on a lot of different levels. But uh, that aside, uh, overall, yeah, there's lots of cheese in the movie. I mean, the hairstyle, uh, the, uh, the clothes, um, some of the, the jokes, some of the, the other stuff. And it's funny because uh, Robert Russler, who played Grady, you know, actually was driven to his audition for Nightmare 2 by one uh, Robert Downey Jr. They co-starred together in uh, Weird Science, the yes. original, you know, in a great film. But uh, he, uh, I love the relationship between Grady and uh, Jesse. I think it was great. Like, it's just enough tension because Grady's like the pompous prick sports, you know, dude. And then Mark's kind of sheltered and, you know, sort of, you know, gentle and more effeminate. And I think that's something else with the film. I think when they tried to break the rules West set, as people call it, they also tried to break the rules of a lot of horror films because in this particular case, think about it, Travis. You too, Vic, for the thought. They tried to replace a final girl with a final boy, and it didn't work. The end, who's the one that saves Jesse's ass? His girlfriend. Lisa. You know, so they, they made a return to the... Uh, final girl. I guess if it's not broke, don't break it, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of criticism with that. I, w- I will tell you another thing, too. Um, there was some, There's another aspect of this movie that was weird. Um, it's not just that they broke Wes Craven's rules, because, again, I, that didn't affect me much, but it, in a lot of ways, when Freddy wasn't part of it, there were a lot of things going on that weren't even Freddy-related. You know what I mean? Like, okay, the bird flying around the house. Type of shit you wouldn't get in another Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I mean, in a lot of ways, this was a haunted house movie. You could have taken a few scenes out, and this wouldn't have been a Freddy movie. It it was really... I mean, I got what he was coming from, where they they ended up having to advertise it as a Freddy movie, but originally maybe it wasn't pushed as much as that way, which is a damn shame, because I don't think they realized it yet that Freddy was the attraction here. And that's true, Travis. That's very true. But think about it. The scenes that you mentioned, I can think of a couple other ones. The records and the, the candles and all yeah. that milk. And the, and, the, and the reason they do that is because at the very, you know, climax, in the middle of the film, you find out the dear old dad there, you know, he got the house for a steal because there was a, a bunch of crimes in the area, all were, you know, relating back to that first nightmare film, which... You know, was actually supposed to be set in 1981. So, you know, you've got five years later, Jesse and his family move in. And uh got the house for steel. And I think that it's the the influence of Freddy in the house. Like, the melting stuff. Think about it. Where did Freddy perish? He perished in a boiler room at the hands of eventual parents. So it's like the oppression of the heat of the, of the you know, the fire and stuff. And then, of course, the birds. Yeah, it's... The bird's kind of weird, but, um... Basically, no, basically, Freddy's influence is fucking destroyed and tainted this entire house. So the whole house is going through, I mean, shit's like exploding when it's not supposed to, the lightning coming through the windows, and birds going ape shit, fucking killing each other and attacking people, and then shit's melting everywhere, and it's, you know, the glove's got a life of its own, it's moving around in the fucking, in the fucking door, and it's just... It's, and then the kill for me thing, you know, and all that sort of thing. So it's like Freddy's, I think it's the corruption of innocence by Freddy's influence. He's such a malevolent force that he doesn't actually specifically have to be there for in the house for things to go wrong. Because after that film, 1428 Elm Street was always the house in the neighborhood that all the kids stayed away from. It was too much weird.
weird shit happened there. It became that haunted house that they were in. I think we all had one in our neighborhoods growing up. It's always one house you didn't want to fuck around with. Yep, I know which one mine was. And, and, um, you know, they never really revisited that. I mean, there there was an an idea of of the the house, but they never really revisited the haunted aspect of things happening there. But, hey, um, bring something up here or talk about something here we haven't talked about yet. The music, we don't get the theme that we do in all the other movies in this one. No, we don't. Um, Chris Young did the score for this, and I think he was going for a more contemporary vibe. And again, this is one of the films that influenced me because I'm sure you and Vic have heard my scores. And, you know, there are apparently a couple of them look like they're going to be used in that new Freddy uh, film thing that uh, Roberto's working on. But, uh, you know, they influenced me a lot, like the soundscapes, like especially the close-ups of the house at night, like the first time that Jesse realizes something's wrong with the house. Like, the music is very modern, and, of course, you hear a lot of actual 80s songs, real real 80s songs, legitimate songs happening at the pool party. But, uh, yeah, this was a departure, and I think what we were talking about earlier, piggybacks on what you said, which was a very keen insight. They didn't know what they had. They didn't know it was going to be a franchise, so they didn't want to redo things that they did in the first film. But as you notice, as soon as Dream Warriors rolls around, guess what theme's back? You know, <laughs> Damn right. And, every, and, and, you know, they, even the poster art, Matthew Peak, you know, I wish I would have mm-hmm. reached out to him. He designed all the poster uh, art for one through five. He didn't have anything to do with uh, Freddy's Dead or uh, or um, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. But check it out. This is the only poster he designed that doesn't, and Jack probably up, it doesn't have Freddy in the poster. Like in the main poster that we know of for the movie with Jesse embracing Lisa and the burr in the house. Like, you don't... You don't mm-hmm. see Freddy in that. So this, I think, New Line was experimenting because, you know, by that point it hadn't made New Line $700 million. That's about what Nightmare on Elm Street has grossed New Line, you know, Time Warner and all that to date is about $700 million. And that ain't, that ain't a bad chunk of change for most of the movies that only cost 3 or $4 million to make. You know, so... Um, I think that, like you said earlier, it was very keen inside. I'm glad you brought it up. I knew you or Vic would bring it up, and and then I was happy that you did. They didn't know what they had. They hadn't had a set uh, set formula, but they knew what they had with Kevin Yeager because they brought him back for Nightmare 3 for makeup, and then he designed mm-hmm. the makeup for Nightmare 4 that Howard Burger applied. So, uh, And, you know, then back for the first season of the TV show. So I think they knew some of what they had. Like, by the end of that movie, when it became a success, they are like, well... Let's keep the, you know, let's keep certain things and get rid of others. But yeah, this is the one entry in the series that only one that focuses really on the haunted house, unless you count Dream Child. It's kind of haunted, sort of in there because there's like all these doll parks laying around. It kind of looks like a, <clears throat> a serial killer's house, which is fucking what it's supposed to look like. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah, so, so I think, you know, the good thing is, though, you know, part two, even though I said that it's not as good as the other three, I mean, they didn't jump the shark or anything. They didn't do anything that was so stupid they couldn't recover from it because that does happen in certain part twos out there. So, you know, we're on a good path here. They haven't fucked up the franchise yet. Um, it may happen later on. It may not. We'll see. Freddie, the nice thing about him is you can pretty much do whatever you want. So. Uh, you send him into space, it didn't take much for him to come back, which they're not going to do, thank God. But you get my point. Um, but, yeah, it, it was, uh, I, I think, a, a decent second entry into it. And no matter which side of the, the coin you're on, you have to admit that they didn't completely, you know, 
shit the bed on this. It, you know, it, it was watchable, and, you know, it, it, they had Robert England. They were smart enough to realize, and thank God Jack did, that, hey, uh, we can't just have anybody play Freddy here, you know. Um, th- this guy brought something to the role that nobody else did, and, and well, there we go. And this is something we've talked about for t- yeah. two straight movies yeah. now. Absolutely. I mean, and, Lou, and you know, Louis Louis Lazara and uh, Peter Kelly both brought it up. Robert England nailed that role. He even or that early on, you know, he. Uh, I'll put it to you this way: after the first Nightmare was made, he was still doing the show V, which I don't know if you're familiar with. It was kind yes, of a, I actually own every single episode. You and me both, good sir. We need to have a drink and watch that because I still ain't finished that. I love the series. I love I, I, You know, actually, I uh, I own I own both the original series and then the little TV show that came on after it, which wasn't that good. And then yeah. I like the I like the recent series too, uh, which is too damn bad. It got canceled. Yeah, I didn't see the recent, but I own the TV series. The I own the the final battle. The, I own the mini series. The TV series. I'm missing the final battle, but that's just because I haven't run up on it yet. But I haven't finished all of the uh, TV series. Yours come in the gray silver box since like 19 episodes. Yes, sir. All right, then we got the same one. We need to have a drink and watch that. But um, anyway, on another note, uh, Robert had just finished up. V was canceled right about the time that Nightmare on Elm Street was about to really start production. So. Yeah, he may have asked for more money, but you know what? He fucking deserved it. I mean, his performance mm-hmm. was amazing. I mean, he and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that probably not a lot of people realize, but Robert made more off of the V series than he did off either one of the first two Nightmare movies. So he didn't he didn't get god awful rich off the first two Nightmare films. He couldn't have. I mean, the budget was so limited, and so much of it had to go for production and effects and. Uh, you know, all this other stuff. So, I mean, he he didn't get rich off those. But by the time the third or fourth one rolled around, I think he realized what he was worth. And, uh, you know, they uh, like I said, I can't believe they left the scene in the second one with the stunt guy, but they did. I just have to turn my head, kind of pretend like it's Freddy, even though it's definitely not Freddy. Uh, but... The only other qualm I have with the movie is that glove, man, that weird skin flesh. Yeah, it was weird, wasn't it? It didn't fit at all. It's it's weird, and my buddy Anders builds a lot of the gloves Robert uses at his table and stuff, and he and Robert are really good friends, and I think he's actually tried to do one of those gloves. I haven't seen it yet, but, uh, man, it's just so weird. Like, seriously, I guess I'm just a purist. I like the metal glove on the on the metal embellishments on a Wells Lamont leather work glove. You know, size medium to large. I, I like the way it looks. I like the crudeness of it. And I think they were going for that. You know, tearing his way out of Jesse's body because you know you see it mm-hmm. really in that big transformation scene that you uh, talked about. You know. So. Yeah, I mean. Like I said, there's a lot of cool stuff in this in this movie, so I mean, I definitely don't want to um, take away from that. You know, when, when I do give criticisms of it, I can give criticisms of a lot of great movies too. So it's good; I enjoy it. And we'll move on to uh, Dream Warriors in two weeks. Next week, we'll talk about and uh, we'll go back to our serial killer series, and we're going to be talking about Gary Ridgeway. I will be doing heavy research, and Blake, you're already familiar, so it should be a fun show. And by the way, I'm excited to talk about. Nightmare 3 when we get to it because um, 
it's one of my favorite entries into the franchise. We'll see if that's still my same opinion after I watch it again, but uh, yeah. definitely uh-huh. definitely an important one for most people that like the Nightmare series. So we'll, we'll definitely get to our thoughts on that when we get there. But, Blake, you know, we have a little segment on this show, and, and no, I'm not talking about, uh, uh, you know, what's grinding my gears, but we'll get well, to that. <laughs> I want to know what you've been watching lately, man. You watch any good, uh, where have your horror adventures taken you lately? Well, see, you're throwing me off, man. It's only 9.15 my time. we still got a good 45 or 50 minutes. I don't know why you're doing this shit. You're always trying to fuck me up, man. <laughs> you got to be on your feet, my man. If I'm going to sit I, here and I, drink, you got to uh, at least be prepared. I'll tell you what I have watched. Um, I went yeah. back, obviously, and I watched Nightmare on Street 2 two days ago just to, you know, it's only the you know fourth time I've watched it this past week, so I, 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 needed, to, <laughs> I needed to fix that up a little bit. And then... um. The wife and I have been watching some Showtime After Dark films. We own one we got on Redbox, and it's uh, called Sanatorium. And uh, it's really, really, really good. It's shot kind of documentary style, sort of like Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activity. But I'm telling you, it is one of the scariest fucking movies I've ever seen shot like that. Like, every time I watch it, I find something new, like a face in the, in the, in the window that I didn't see Ooh. before. Shadow. Kind of like Insidious. You know how when you watch Insidious, you see new things? Yes. And speaking of, I did. We did sit down right before last and watch the new Insidious film. and uh, I liked it. I liked that movie. It I wasn't as good as the first one. Yeah, but I was a little bummed they didn't bring back Jayla Roche to play. Uh, yeah. Well, the I role. mean, they, they went completely away from that. But yeah, I agree. It would have been nice to see him. My wife looks fun. She she loves the movies, but she hates that guy. The first time she not Jay LaRoche, she hates the makeup. She's like, Look at this shit. He looks like fucking Darth Maul. And I was like, Holy <laughs> death, I looked and I was like, He died <laughs> Dude, I've heard people talk about that before. Uh, uh I can't argue with it, but at the same time I love it so much. What am I gonna say, you know? And it stars Lynn Shay, who is sister to Bob Shea. She plays a... Uh, yes, sir. The, the principal. Uh, the, yeah. Isn't it the principal? Huh? Isn't she the principal in the first one or a teacher in the first one? The first night on Elm Street? She's yeah. A, she's, a she's one of the bar patrons in the second. I don't think she's in the third one. She's not in the fourth one. She's not in the fifth one. Uh, she's in Nightmare, New Nightmare, but I don't think she was in any of the uh, okay. middle for whatever reason. But yeah, she plays obviously one of the main characters in Insidious, and it's such a treat because she really is a really fine actress. And you know, if you haven't seen 2001 Maniacs as as, as Granny, she's she's amazing. That movie's so great. Oh, she, she's pretty so, awesome. She is. She's pretty well. awesome. But, yeah, um, that's um, the that I've been watching recently. And, of course, I started Dexter back over because I own all eight seasons of Dexter. Yeah. Not quite horror, but, you know, hey. Whatever. Hey, fuck it, man. It's about serial killers, and that's what we're talking next week, so it should be fun. But, yeah, I, I love Dexter. I, uh, i tell you this much, though, and not to spoil anything because I'm not going to get into spoilers of it, so let's kind of stray away from that for anybody that's afraid to uh, listen if they haven't seen them all. But, okay, so... I kind of feel like Dexter went on for maybe two or three seasons too long, and not because I didn't like him. It just felt like they didn't feel like Dexter the last year or two because the characters went in a different direction. Well, it kind of I, pissed I me off. Well, I see what you're saying. Yeah, about the, the last season or so. I really liked it up until about season, the end of season seven, but I think what they were doing was they were 
ever put an end to it, but they left it open because now I've seen, I've been, I keep stirring in the rumor mill, um, that they're supposed to be trying to bring it back. Yep. So That's what that's I keep saying, too. Yeah, man. Hey, hey Dare's here. What's up, hey, Dare? What's going on? You, you missed Jack's shoulder, dude. Yeah, no, I heard a little bit of Jack. Uh, really good stuff there. Uh, just wanted to call in for a few minutes and uh, get in a little bit of Nightmare on Elm Street, too. But uh, I'm really looking forward to the third, which has been my favorite for many, many years. But uh, As a kid, it was my favorite, too. So we'll see if it is these days or not. But, yeah, Jerry, I'm with you there. So, all right, man, go ahead and continue. Uh, I mean, I, I just watched uh, the first three uh, about ten days ago, and uh, part I remember. of it holds up for me. Um, so, yeah, and I, um, my 15-year-old stepdaughter is starting to get into horror, um, and she was interested in watching them with me, so uh, she saw them for the first time. Uh, what did she think of them? She did not like the ending to part one, uh, which I... Yeah, it's kind of, it's just so, who the fuck knows what happened, you know? Uh, I can see uh, how that would bug people. She was okay up until the mom got pulled through the door, and... (laughs) (laughs) But, um, part two, two she liked a little better, um, which, of course, is the topic of discussion for tonight, Freddy's Revenge. Um, Mm -hmm. And... Uh, part three, she agreed with me. She really liked. She she liked the whole cast. Will, Kincaid, all of them were just classic. But you know, we won't get too much into that until we get into that show. But um, I have a couple of notes from part two. If I'm not throwing y'all off too much. No, no, you're not throwing us off at all. I'm glad you're here. So I mean, let, let's get back on the nightmare discussion. Talk about part two a little bit. Well, part two, uh, and this is probably going to come off. A little bit uh, detrimental to it, but but I enjoy Freddy. Uh, you know, if I had to rank him, he'd be you know, of course, I'm a Leatherface guy, then Michael Myers, then Jason, then Freddy. But uh, you know, then all the other bums behind them. But uh, <laughs> damn, <laughs> uh, I love the school bus opening uh, in part two. I'm sure you guys may have touched on that. And, Yep, I said it's iconic. I feel like that's something really that, you is. know, to this day, people uh, associate Freddy with. Uh, Grady is a character that I wanted to die immediately as soon as he was introduced. Because <laughs> uh, he's a jock asshole? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I believe that Jesse and Grady have one of the most homoerotic fights in horror movie history. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably accurate. And another thing I'm sure you guys have talked about is uh, Freddie getting a little bit more character and a couple of one-liners in this movie, and, and of course that continues going forward. Uh, of course, you've got you've got the body, I've got the brain in part two, which is a iconic line in horror history. I have to give that its props. Didn't they slip that into the Will Smith song, uh, the Fresh Prince yeah. song? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and. Uh, See what else I got here. I I made a note uh, that there's actual actually combustible birds in this movie, and then a toaster catches fire, and the dad says that that's the craziest thing he's ever seen. <laughs> that's, 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 that's and it's not even of, plugged in. Yeah, yeah. We talked about that about the oppression, yeah. and the, this is yeah. more like a haunted house, like Ronnie Street, you know. 
Um, this is probably a lot of retread stuff, but but I did catch some of Jack um, earlier, so um, I do appreciate that you get a little bit more of the origin uh, of the Springwood Slasher in Part 2, uh, mm-hmm. you know, visiting the factory and then showing the newspaper headline. That's something that I, I think, like a lot of Nightmare fans, uh, you know, that I always would like to see investigated more. Well, you'll get your chance once I get this book done because this whole this whole book, uh, Razor's Edge, chronicles. Each book is going to chronicle a few victims because we're going for twenty. Because apparently he killed twenty kids. That's what I'm going by as far as uh, Tom Baby and Karen's concerned. So you'll get to see a lot more of that. And uh, hey, is this the first one where they said he killed twenty? Because I know they mentioned it in this one. Yeah, yeah. Lisa says he kidnapped twenty kids, brought them here, and killed them. And there you then, go. Yep, yep. Uh, and, of so, course, they show, they show the bodies hanging at one point, and it, it seems to be, you know, right around 20 of them hanging there. Oh, let's let's be honest. not in the third one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the yeah. third one, yeah. I'm sorry, that wasn't the third one, but... uh, Let's be honest, he wasn't just killing those kids. You know um, what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't take that angle in my book simply out of respect for Wes, because Wes has I hear you. it right. So, I mean, it's... It's you know I don't even imply it. I just I imply that he killed them, and I did it in such a way because huh, they're like you can't actually the publishers like you can't actually have him killing people. I was like, ah, oh, fuck, you're trying to sanitize Freddy. This is the end of film as we know it. Yeah. Hey, look, look, it's one thing to kill a little kid, but if you stick your dick in their butt, that's a whole other world of pain, and that's oh, what they're on, saying. Jesus. Yeah, I've been drinking. Look, I'm just saying, there are certain taboos in this world, and killing little kids apparently is not one of those taboos. That's the problem. Yeah, hey, i got to play devil's advocate here. Of course you do. Just like I said on the last show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody's well, disagreeing. I think that's pretty much an unwritten rule. <laughs> yeah, it is. You can kill one kids, but I'll be damned neglect- if you're going to fuck one. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing we neglected to mention in this movie was this is the first one in the in the series where we find out where it is, actually. Springwood, Ohio yeah. this is the first uh, film, because in the first film, you're seeing palm trees and shit. And you're like, yeah, it looks like California. Well, yeah, which is part of the shot. It's funny, Jack Shoulders mentions uh, his characters come from Springwood in uh, Alone in the Dark, which was he did three years before Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and then his uh, production company is actually called Springwood Productions. So I think we have Mr. Shoulder there to thank for uh, Springwood. Yeah. You know what's kind of weird? Very interesting. We had to figure out, you have to kind of figure out that Crystal Lake's in New Jersey and, you know, uh, Springwood's in Ohio here. But, like, the only one that I can think of, or, of course, you know, Texas Chainsaw goes with that saying, but Hattonfield's really, like, obviously Illinois. But the other two, you know, Springwood and Crystal Lake, they don't really drive that point home over and over again like they do Hattonfield, Illinois. It's kind of weird. Well, they do kind of in a couple of the films. I mean, in in three, you get to hear it a little bit. In two, you get to hear it. And then Freddy's Dead, it's all over the place. I mean, there's a map Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the movie, Springwood, Ohio, 10 years from now. And then they give you the the rundown on all the unexplained suicides and killings. But it's it's hammered in, but I think they were worried they were going to pepper it too much in because it's supposed to be any town USA and why he picked 
Springwood, Ohio is beyond me, but hey, whatever, it works. I'm not fucking with something that works. So. Every town has an Elm Street. Oh, it's yeah. so great that you said that. Like I said, if there's, any, if there's anybody from overseas listening, I'm touching myself right now as I'm talking about this. Oh, God. Um, Jesus. And that's the shit, folks. Well, damn it. I, I, hey, you, you, broke the, you broke the taboo thing about the, the shit you're talking about, so nothing I can say can match the horror. Of what Look, I didn't about. write these movies about a pedophile with a one glove and a, a Christmas sweater. That wasn't me. I just well, watched him. Yeah, a thinly veiled Michael Jackson reference with the one glove thing. Seriously? Yeah, and, my sweater sweater and, everything. and that sweater, the hat. Oh, my God. And he caught on fire. Didn't Michael Jackson catch on yeah, fire? Yeah, he did. Hair caught on fire in 1984. Yeah, that was the thing in the 80s, people catching on fire and wearing one glove. Freddy Krueger was doing the moonwalk. We'll tear your soul apart. We've got it all together now. To your point, though, I kind of, I kind of, one of the things, one of the understated things about the Halloween movies that I did like was that everyone, you know, kind of started Haddonfield, Illinois, kind of brought you back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, hey, uh, maybe Jerry. Not, I don't know if you yeah. got to hear this, but uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street two director, he actually got to work with Donald Pleasance, and we made him talk about it. Really, I did not. Oh hell yeah! Cool. Yeah, dude. So when you get a chance, go back and listen to it. It was, uh, it was good stuff, man. The fact that he worked with Donald Pleasance, I was like, I got to jump on that Donald Pleasance. Oh, and Mark oh, Landau and Jack Palance. I mean, that's what? a triumvirate of like. What was the project that he worked with uh, Donald Pleasant on? Alone in the Dark, 1982. Okay. Hey, uh, weird connection here. I I always think of a connection between Robert England and Donald Pleasant because Robert England basically plays the Dr. Loomis role in uh, uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Yes, he did, absolutely. By the way, I'm friends with uh, Leslie Vernon the the guy who plays him on Facebook, I need to get him on this show soon. You should. You should that's, that's that's Stop depending on me to bring all the fucking good guests in. Get up off your ass and do some fucking work. Hey, I'm wrong. I got to wait Mosley. for Hey, we're doing the Nightmare Retrospective, and then I'll do some work. Well, guess Jared, what? Jared brought Mosley on the show, guys. Let's not forget hey. that. I that's see true. Your, you I, I, <laughs> hey, Jared, I see your Mosley with Ira Hyden, Ken Sagos, and fucking Rodney Eastman. I hey, see boy. your Mosley. Blair, you you got to raise him with Robert England, or else there's no no deal. Well, well I'll talk to tell you wife, his wife is putting the word in, so we'll see. Let me, or let me or Heather Langenkamp. Either one. Either one. Let me tell you, let me tell you though, Blake, I sent, Travis, I sent Travis and Vic a message earlier and told them how big of a fan of Ira Hyden's character I am in Part 3, so I am yeah. excited for that. There are actually some interesting things in Part 3, and, Jerry, you'll have to rejoin us for the Part 3 episode. Hey, Jerry, so next week we're talking about Gary Ridgway. You want to join us? Because we don't have experts uh, for this one. Yeah, I love, I, I love uh, Ridgway's whole story and, and, you know, the elusiveness of him and, and how, you know, kind of normal he was. Uh, yeah, I would definitely be up for that. And let's not forget, he's the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history that we know of. I'm glad you brought that up. U.S. history. you got to get this shit right because the most prolific serial killer in history came from India. Yep. There's, there. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of other ones, but yeah, in the U.S. that we know of, that we know of, it's Ridgeway. Uh, so it'll be a, kind of a big show next week. So, Jared, you, you have to join us if you can because 
again, we don't have experts next week. There's not going to be anybody, you know, um, that you have to wait on. It's just us. We're going to be talking some Ridgeway. Gary Ridgeway killed them all. He must have, because I can't get a hold of none of these motherfuckers. I hit up this Indian professor, and why he's Indian is beyond me, like why I have to mention that fact, but he is. But anyway, he he didn't respond to me, and I didn't appreciate it. It pissed me off. <laughs> Riled me up real good. Oh, whatever. I hate when people don't respond. Just fucking say, fuck you. That would work for me. If somebody just told me, fuck you. That's better than nothing. Were, uh, somebody just told you, fuck you, legit, like right now? I wish they would. That'd oh, be better okay. than I them just not responding. Oh, yeah. Well, no, that's definitely. I thought you meant somebody just like put in the chat, fuck you, for no reason or something. Hey, Jared, before you, before you jump in with what you were about to say, happy birthday, Jen, uh, uh, our buddy in Colorado. So, happy birthday. Her happy birthday today. Absolutely. Yeah, happy birthday. She joined us uh, on the, uh, what was that? The, the Shining. Shining. Oh, yeah. And Dahmer. And Dahmer. Yeah, happy birthday to her. Uh, I yeah, kind of brought something up, Travis. It was so funny. You were talking earlier about the Nightmare on Elm Street movie, and you were like, there's an idea of a something-something. I was like, there's an idea of a Patrick Bateman. Something <laughs> <in the movie>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I knew when you said there's an idea that you are going that way. Of course. It's me. You know that. <laughs> there's an idea of a Blake Best. And then there's the real Blake Best. They, they're not the same. But anyway, Jared, continue with what your thought was, buddy. Uh, let's see. Where, where was I going? I'm not sure where I was going. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It'll come back to me. Hey, Jared, I said this, and, you know, Blake's a nightmare guy, so I can't really fault him. Uh, but I said of the four, you know, the Mount Rushmore four slashers, that this is my least favorite of the part twos, because I like Halloween two and Friday the 13th Part 2, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 better than this one. What about you? Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, definitely. That's one of my favorite horror movies ever. Um, yep, me too. Halloween 2, I have to say yes. Uh, I, I love Halloween 2. Halloween 2, in my opinion, was better than the first one. I, I used to think that, Blake. I, I used to think that, and then I, like later on, I've changed my opinion. But um, I, I love There's more blood. Yeah, I do like that. It's also very, and I said this on the show uh, like two years ago, but Halloween 2 is really, really fucking slow. Now, the first one's really slow, too, but there's a little bit of a difference between slow with atmosphere and slow just like, come on, let's go. Do you know the guy that played Michael Myers in the second one is probably the most famous, like, serial killer like guy that plays a serial killer or, or uh, you know, something like that ever? He, his name is Dick Warlock. Dick Warlock? Yeah, he's Kurt Russell's personal stuntman. He has been for in the thing. Yeah, yeah, he was in the thing. Yeah, it, but uh, yeah, I don't know if y'all got into ratings or anything, but I definitely have to agree with you as far as the the four, the big four. This would be my least favorite. Uh, season yeah, I'd give the two. other three four out of four, and this one I gave two and a half out of four. Blake gave it four. He loves this one. It's, I think it's favorite of the series. So yeah, I gave this one two out of. Yeah, there's that story to that. Jared can go back and listen to it. I don't feel like talking about that fucked up shit anymore. But, uh. yeah, All right. Um, I know what I was going to ask, um, and I, I guess I could just send this to you in a message, but we're online, you know. It don't matter to me. Fuck, fuck it. Matter, so. uh, Ken Fagos, Ken Cade from Part 3, Blake, uh, do you know what he's been up to and uh, if there's any chance that we're going to get a chance to talk to him at all? 
he said that he wanted to do part four. I mean, he's been working on crowdfunding a book that's really amazing. It's called The Adventures of Nadir, The Great Migration. It's a it's like a kid's book, sort of, and it's it's very uplifting, definitely not scary at all. He's been a crowdfunding that, also doing some theater work. He's been working a lot with, you know, um, black theater and stuff like that. So he's sort of become sort of a renaissance man. But uh, he, he told me to remind him closer to the show, you know, I've got, shit, I don't know, for three and four, we're going to have an ass load of people on. We've got... Now, I don't know if you know the entire guest list or not, but if you don't, I mean, it's, you know, Ira Hyden for three. We've got Rodney Eastman for three. We've got Mick Strong, who's the art the art director. He texted me the other night. We were talking music. It was funny. Like, one o'clock more than my time. He's like, hey, man. I'm like, hey. Because <laughs> I was, like, asleep, and it scared me because I keep my phone by my head and started buzzing. But, um, he, uh, yeah, we're going to have him on. And then for four, we're going to have Steve Johnson on for... The effects. We're going to have Danny Hassel. We're going to have um, Rodney Eastman, Ken Sagos. We might have Lisa Wilcox. Uh, her personal uh, publicist, like one of the guys that runs one of her Facebook pages, like hit me up and we talked about it. And he's put the word in with her, so we might. I love her. her. Yeah, she's great. She's fantastic. I I, I love her. And uh, four and five. So. Here's hoping, and then I put a word in with uh, Nancy England. Uh, Robert's on vacation, but uh, Anders Erickson said that he'll talk to him too because he might want to come on and do one of the uh, shows. He's the personal glove builder that builds the Nightmare Gloves that uh, Robert kind of endorses and shit. You can look him up on Nightmare Gloves uh, on Facebook, thenightmaregloves.com. Fantastic work. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're going to have all those guys. I don't have anybody for seven yet. I've been trying to reach out to Heather, but it's stonewalled, and then... Miko Hughes, I don't know. He does some DJ in California. He like does some live DJ and live music stuff. So I don't know if he's going to want to come on or come on or not. So that one's kind of open. I thought Ken was awesome in part three, just just as Ira was. So uh, if that helps even a smidgen about him coming on, tell him I thought his shit was awesome in part three. And of course, uh, yeah, I just wanted to. Mention that because my fifteen-year-old especially loved Kenny Cade's character in in part three, saying all these words that I won't let her say, and uh, <laughs> she, she just she laughed every time Kenny Cade delivered a one-liner. Well, my my favorite time was she's like she's like you just bought yourself a night in the quiet room. Now sit down. Fuck you. You sit down. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You should go back and listen to the first one. We had J.C. Garcia on, you know, who uh, yeah. played Rod. That was a that was a big show. I was this yeah, one was amazing. Yeah. I love these. Uh, Rod was a huge guest to have for that first one. I, you know, props for getting Rod Lane in the house for the first one. That's and crazy. and he pulled off a couple of the lines from the film for some of the uh, fe- some of the female uh, listeners because we had a couple. Melissa, I know you're out there. <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. dude, it it was fun. It 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 really was. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, hey, I'm gonna jump back to uh, what we've been watching real quick. It's not so much what I've been watching, but I do have to mention I listened to. Uh, I've talked about it on the show before, but I listened to the Pet Cemetery audiobook today, the whole th- the whole way through because it's not one of those that's like just somebody reading. You know, it's an actual audio production. It's good shit. I still like it. I can't wait for the remake. I don't give a shit whether it needed one or not. I'll watch it. Oh, man. I I mess with my wife because uh, 
I can do an uncanny uh, Fred Gwynn. Like, she'll come in from work, and I'm like, Lois, Lois. Sometimes dead is better. <laughs> it, freaks, it freaks her out. She's like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Dude, I'm telling you, I still feel like, and we I know we talked about this on our Stephen King list show, but fuck, man, I still feel like people don't give Pet Cemetery enough credit because I think it's a scary fucking story. It is. It's a very scary story. And Miko Hughes, if we can get him on for a new nightmare, I'd love him to talk about Pet Cemetery for Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I'd be you know, no fame. Dude, now that I have kids, that... that fucking book and the movie and whatever else you want to say, that shit makes me uncomfortable just because of what happens with Gage and everything. I can't watch it. I can't watch it. It fucks me up. I can't watch it. And the dad, Adele Mitkiff, screaming, no, as it shows you all the photos of his life happening. It's fucked up, man. And I'll tell you what, the the audio book's no no better. There's scary horror and there's uncomfortable horror. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's true horror like that and, and things that are like, huh, well, this is not one of those kind of moments. It's one of those, Jesus Christ, I mm-hmm. I have a hard time watching it. And, I, and you know, the audio book isn't any better. What they do is, you know, he goes through these different things in his mind where it's like it never happened and he just saved them just in time. And so, you know, like he goes through it quickly through what his life would have been like, Gage's had that, you know, not happen. It's just fucked up, man. It just makes you want to kind of hug your kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll here and, and let y'all get ready to wrap it up and do all that good shit. But uh, everybody who's listening, hopefully you have. If you haven't watched Making a Murderer yet, watch that. Cause, uh, I, I've watched the first couple episodes, dear. I wasn't in, as into it as you might think, and only because man. it pisses me off. Well, see, that's that's what that's what kept me into it. I was like, see, because like, it's like one of those movies where you watch something and you know one person's innocent, and yet like they're still getting railroaded, like the fugitive. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And like, it just angers you. Yeah. And like, that's kind of what it's like for me. Like, it's yeah, just, I can see that. and I don't know a lot of people that glues them to it. All right, no, I'll tell a story on the air. Okay, I've been arrested before. Okay, and it wasn't for shit I did. Um, and I had to cop a plea because there was just no getting out of it. But I didn't fucking do it. And uh, this involves the ex bitch that uh, I was married to. Anyway, so so there's it, it hits close to home for me to know that these fuckers are overzealous prosecutors that just want to win their case. They don't care about the truth. So for me to sit back and watch something like that is really hard, yeah, you know? Yeah, I got you. you got kind of it's not so much hard as much that. as it just pisses me off and wants, makes me want to punch all these people. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Another Pieces thing I watched shit. is a little little forty eight minute documentary, fifty minute documentary on Netflix called Manson's Missing Victims. Mm. Yeah, you told either. me you you love some Manson, don't you? I do, man. Uh, I watched Manson Family Vacation, which is not necessarily a Marilyn Manson film, but it's not necessarily not a Manson film either. It was actually pretty good. with, uh, you know, a bit of a twist ending if you don't see it coming, which um, I kind of did see the ending coming. But mm-hmm. it was a fun little movie and, and it had a lot of cool, I mean, just for the 12 to 15 minutes of actual um, Charles Manson footage cut in, in between it at certain times, it, it's mm-hmm. worth watching. And 
than the Manson's missing victims is about, uh, you know, like members of the family that left before all the shit went down with Tate LaBianca and all that and where they ended up and if it's possible that some of them were killed and, so you know, where their lives took them after the fact. So it's pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, anyway, this is the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 show. Blake, thanks for getting all the cool guests, man. Seriously, uh, look yes. for the Dream Warriors um, in a couple of weeks here, and maybe talking with Gary Ridgeway next week. But uh, I'll go ahead and leave it to you guys, kind of wrap it up. All right, man. Follow Jared at the one and only Jared. That's with a one and yes, only sir. Jared J E R. I'll, I'll talk to you next week, buddy. All right, guys. All right, stay safe, brother. And that is our buddy from North Carolina, Jer, and uh, Vic story on duty. He's making fun of Jer because Jer accidentally said Marilyn Manson earlier. <laughs> Not Charles Manson. He said Marilyn Manson by mistake, apparently. Nice of Vic to play editor. Um, <laughs> But you know what? At least Jerry's not been drinking. God knows what I've said on this podcast. I'll have to go. See, Blake, what happens is I'll go back and listen to it, and I'll be like, who the fuck? Why didn't anybody stop me? <laughs> it's your show. I can't stop you. <laughs> oh, that's true. Somebody could at least try to help me, you know. But, it, you know, they just let me I run wild. Such a fucking real train wreck the first three or four words out. By that point, it was too late. I was like, fuck it. Let him just fucking That's very true. You know, um, uh, it was about four months ago. Uh, I was I was talking on one of the shows, and Vic literally cut me off and ended the show because I went so I went so off the beaten path with the shit I was saying. I'm no, not that show. It was longer than that. It was probably when I was singing on a show because I was so drunk. That would be the Debbie Sue Voorhees show whenever we had her on. I started singing about her uh, uh, mammary glands. So. Oh, my God. Her, oh, she's got, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't mean any disrespect because she's probably, you know, like somebody's mother now or something. So, but, I mean, seriously. And she, in the Friday the 13th, the best cleavage scene, hers. And then I don't like the movie, but I own it because I love the death. The sex scene, railroad spike death, and Jason goes to hell. Oh my God! Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. We're we're on the same page, my friend. We're on the same. But yeah, after the Debbie Sue Voorhees interview, I was so drunk, and it, somehow I kept it together for the interview, Blake. But I was drunk as shit that night, and I started singing afterwards and talking about how I wanted to spend my life in between her tits. <laughs> it was bad. Because you're like the DD, you know, you got to keep it on track so we don't run into a wall. I guess. Um, Somebody's got to do it. Might as well be Blake. Yeah, I guess. There's an idea of a Blake, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine how much, how bad we'd go off the rails if you were drunk, too? It'd be rough. Oh, Steve Steve thought I was drunk on this show. He was like, messaging me. I was like, whoa. You were all riled up about something that night. This fucking idiot editing my Wikipedia page, bastard. Oh, yeah, yeah, And I was all sorts of confused because of fucking bastards. Because, you know, it's hard enough to tell what somebody's done anyway, especially if somebody's not, like, thoroughly listed on, like, IMDb or whatever. But, you know, I had to rely on the Wikipedia page, which somebody fucked up, which wasn't you. 
Oh, but it pissed me off. And what I hate even more is that wherever you got your picture for Steve's thing, that wasn't actually Steve making the, making up uh, David Naughton and uh, Griffin Dunn. That was actually Rick Baker's picture. I don't know where the fuck you got the picture, but that was Rick Baker. Uh, I don't know. I thought he was in the background of it, but whatever. Who knows? Uh, yeah, it was the best show was hilarious. But yeah, that guy edited my shit and put I Am Legend on there. It's like, dude, go in there and put a parenthesis and put makeup test only. That would have rectified the entire situation. Makeup test. Easy. You know? But he was too busy telling me how he was descending a Brigham Young like I gave a damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, uh, so, I gotta ask you, man, what's been grinding your gears? We haven't even gotten to that point yet. Oh, well, we are at that point because we only got about fourteen minutes 14, left in the show. Fourteen minutes, yeah. Uh, what's been grinding my gears? Well, I must say, I got the news today. Well, the past couple of days, day before yesterday, it was um, the gentleman from uh, Angus Scrim from Phantasm uh, passing away, and then today, yeah, that was sad. Like, David Bowie today, I was like, and then mm-hmm. Lemmy, Lemmy last week, yeah. I was like, they come in threes, that's what my friend says, they come in threes, and there uh, you go, there's three. People online talking about whatever, people just, you know, like, I was bummed about that, but uh, other than that, really not too much, grinding my gears, got a new singer for the band, and got everything lined up, so we're getting ready to start finishing this record, so I've been geared up and happy about that, it gets me away from all the people that piss me off. <laughs> Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a sports related one right now, and I've probably brought something like this up before. And you know, if you're not big into sports, then it's all good. But okay, so tonight we've got Alabama taking on uh, Clemson. And Vic, are you around? Yeah. Okay, so you're gonna like this. Okay, so I just want to tell all the UK fans out there. Or whoever, anybody else in the SEC, whether you're a Florida fan, whether you're a whoever fan in the SEC, if Alabama wins this game, you don't get shit for this, okay? Alabama wins the national title, which I hope they don't, but it looks like they will. You don't get anything, okay? So there's no sort of SEC pride there. They kicked your ass just the same as they did all these other teams. The only one that could get any pride is maybe Ole Miss because they beat them. But everybody else, you don't get a share of this title, okay? So don't start giving me this SEC. SEC, you don't get anything for it. In the NFL, do you think people are excited in the NFC East because the Cowboys won a title? Fuck no, they all hate them. That's why the SEC is a joke. Yeah, I don't see. I don't pay much attention to the sports thing. My family are big Alabama folks, and uh, my cousin is actually an old Miss. So it's like having them both over here. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> Because I don't subscribe to either. I've seen some games, and I admire what the players do. But I don't. The yeah. last Super Bowl I watched was probably the 1999 Super Bowl with the Titans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I just, but you know, Vic, Vic, I'm sure knows what I'm talking about. Vic, do you think it's as ridiculous as I do that the SEC like they don't? And I know we've talked about this before, but the fact that these fans like. You know, they all claim to hate each other all year long, but when the end of the year comes, that's obviously not true. Yeah, I mean, it's horrible. And I, honestly, I don't know if the rest of the SEC does it or if it's only Kentucky fans or we just see it because we deal with them all the time. Because, but it is ridiculous. I mean, obviously, they suck in football, so they're going I bet to... Auburn fans don't go for Alabama. I guarantee it. In fact, I, I guarantee you Auburn fans don't. Uh, uh, Blake is a, uh, not just like the other Blake, is an Auburn fan. I know she don't like Alabama. 
Yeah, I'm just saying, like uh, true rivalries like that wouldn't. But I mean, as far as the other SEC schools, is it you? Is it that we see UK fans doing it because they don't have a football program, so they kind of have to latch on to other people's? I've yeah. seen people on Facebook just go fucking ape shit the past week or two. Like people's like, well, you know, your girlfriend, you know, she'll cheat on you with me because mine's bigger. I'm like, what the fuck does that have to do with the fact that you don't like the same sports team he likes? It's like, give it a fuck. <laughs> Stupid, stupid shit. It's irrelevant. Just like the teams you like, hate the teams you hate, and fucking don't bring people's girlfriends and mamas and you know all that. They were going straight up exorcists on on this one guy. He's like, oh my god, they said some shit. I can't even. I wouldn't. Even, I'm not even gonna say it on the air. It's that fucking bad. I was like, oh, over what? Over a score? Fuck that. Yeah, it's crazy. And Vic, I've got another one that's grinding my gears too. Uh, stupid-ass Bengals fans and anybody else who's blaming the referees for your loss. Okay. Number one, it shouldn't have come down to that. Maybe if you didn't have a fucking fumbler. Number two, quit bitching. Okay? Your fucking players are dirty, Bengals fans. I'm sorry to tell you this. Your players are dirty. They're taking cheap shots on people. What did you expect to happen? Yeah, their team is like a team full of confidence. They're like the old fucking Cowboys or the Mighty Hurricanes or something like that. Except they don't win anything. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't know. I mean, it's everything they brought in Pac-Man and uh, the other fucker from West Virginia that killed him, uh, Chris Henry, and like even fucking Ocho Cinco was, you know, he was out. He was out of it. Marvin Lewis just does not run a, a good team. No. He doesn't, and I just want to remind Bengals fans that you guys and your rivalry with the Steelers, even if you guys hate each other, it's still irrelevant. You guys aren't a big boy rivalry until you guys actually win a Super Bowl, because otherwise nobody gives a shit. Everybody knows that you're going to end up losing ultimately anyway. You know, you might win the division a year or two, but at the end of the day, you're still just going to lose in the playoffs. And, the Steel- and I don't like the Steelers. Let me make that clear. But they're... Uh, <laughs> And they're clearly better than you all, and they proved it once again. I mean, once you guys beat them in a real game, and don't tell me for a, a division title during the regular season, beat them in a real game or win something important. Until then, shut the fuck up because you're at the kitty table until then. I mean, the Bengals along with the Browns. You know, they're Browns rivals. That's it. Yep, pretty much. Um, hey. Vic, you got anything that's grinding yours um, before before I let Blake jump in there? Sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm good, man. All I do is work. I, I know, work man. You don't get to watch anything. I, I did get some trick-or-treat tattoos, so that's where my horror adventures are taking me this week. I got my fan tattoo on my forearm. so I'm Vic's best that. tattoo, by the way. And not just because I love Sam, because I love Jason more, but uh, his Sam tattoo is the best one he has. What, the Sam What's that? Uh, I, I, I didn't understand what you said. Who is it you got a tattoo of? Sam? He got Sam from Trick or Treat, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought you said. I was like, that's a, that's a pretty bad. I got a C picture. So that is that shit on Facebook? Uh, Nick, I'll is it on you, Facebook? It is. I'll send you a picture of it. Is that. Uh, Dude, I it looks so good. I didn't mean to jump in on you, Travis, earlier. All I wanted to say was... Uh, I felt terrible about not being able to do a proper ending last time when you relinquished most of the show stuff to, to me to take over the last show other than, you know, Vic hanging out. I was wondering if you guys would be opposed to me fixing that, rectify that situation tonight by giving you guys a proper send-off. Ah, 
Well, if you guys, if you have something you want to throw out, go for it, my man. Before we, uh, you know, get to our uh, plugs and all that good stuff, don't don't worry. Our shows are uh, half half the time incomplete. Like I said, Vic cut me off before because I was too drunk. So I, I know, but I just wanted to. That was my way of thanking you both for these amazing shows. Is I wanted to give you guys a super badass send off. You know, like do, do all your links because I memorized all that shit. By the way, good job. <laughs> You know, yeah. you uh, honored our show by uh, making sure you get good guests, so that's been pretty impressive for our Nightmare Retrospective, because I wouldn't have been able to get these people. I might have got a couple, but as a whole, nope. And so it's been good, man. I've enjoyed it, and we're only two in, and uh, in two weeks we'll go to part three, which which it's nice that we get a nice little break, because part three is, I mean, it might as well be the start of a new series, because it's so good, so... We'll get there, um, but uh, yeah, next week Gary Ridgeway is what we're going to be talking about. I have to throw that out. I'm sure I'll get something up at trapbitforward.wordpress.com. Um, Blake, um, you know, I don't know if you got to throw it out last week because we were so jam packed full of people. Throw out your uh, your uh, info for people to find you and your band. Uh, well, is the band even complete right now? Yeah, I was just telling you. Yeah, we're complete. We've got a new uh, a new lead singer. We had to do some lineup rearranging, which kind of put a damper on things because the radio wanted to put our single on in heavy rotation, and now there's nomenclature issues. And gotta respect the other singer's wishes, or I could find my ass in fucking court. So uh, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna be putting that particular single on the radio, unfortunately, even though it's gonna piss a lot of people off because. You know, the last show we played, there was like 250 people there, and we had a week to promote. So if that tells you anything, we, we've got a pretty sizable following. So we're working on a follow-up album. If you want to find me, you can find me at facebook.com forward slash Shreddy Kruger 1428. That's my personal profile. If you want to join my Freddy group, it's <clears throat> co-administered by my wife, myself, and a few other really amazing people. That's uh, Search Elm Street's Last Brats. If you like metal and hardcore, good rock and roll and heavy stuff, you can check out facebook.com forward slash life below zero. I also have a WordPress. I just, you know, don't use it too much. It's a singredandgreen.wordpress.com. That's my first nightmare book. It's kind of an open thing for people to see what I've written so far. So that's out there. And uh, let me just say, uh, the Elm Street's Last Brats, I believe. It, it's a hell of a little group, so everybody join that if you're a Freddy fan. If you're enjoying this retrospective, join in, have some conversation with some people. You know, I, I you know, I told you before that I've had issues with Nightmare and Elm Street fans before. Um, as a whole, your group's been pretty good. They haven't pissed me off, so that's always a plus. Well, and I screen, you know, I don't say that I screen, but I pay attention to what a lot of, like I said, I get on Facebook at least two or three times a day, so I'm actively a member. Anybody that is having these things, like, where they will actually speak to me, send me a message, I will talk to you. That's not a problem. So, I mean, I'm on there all the time, and I look at what people say. And the main reason for doing that was because the other group I was in had 3,000 something people. They were always pissing me off because they were like, my dick is bigger than yours. My shit's better. <laughs> my, my mask is so much better. Your shit's weak. I have some guy yeah. tell me that my David Miller mask had a weak paint up and it looked like it was painted in a garage. I was like, you're right. It's painted in David fucking Miller's garage. Don't fucking talk about my shit or you'll find yourself being reported, you asshole. So yeah. I was like, fuck you. I'm not going to be a part of that. So I started my own with wife and now it's grown because when I first started with you guys on the uh, West Craven show back in August, there were like a hundred people in it. Now it's well over a thousand. So growing exponentially, and I'm very 
appreciative to everybody who wants to be a part of it, yourself included. Vic, you need to join that shit just because it's the thing to do so you can fit in. <laughs> oh, I love my fucking American Psycho references. I love that shit, even if I'm the only one that gets them. <laughs> he wants to fit in. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, at Trav and Vic Horror, I believe. That's probably pretty close. At TNV, or, uh, let's see, TNV Horror at gmail.com. We'll have a, a link up for the Ridgeway Show up on TalkShoe soon. Of course, we'll put it on our website. Fuck, we're on Facebook. We're on Periscope. I'm too lazy to tell you it all, so just go to TravinVicHorror.wordpress.com. We'll be back. Same bat time, same bat channel with the Gary Ridgeway episode next week. What was Gary Ridgeway's nickname? Whoever goes first gets the prize. Green River Killer. That's right. You get the prize of being able to come on the show next week. Woo! Blake's my co-host. Travis and Blake's Drunken Horror Adventures. <laughs> Vic, are you going to join us next week and actually talk about Gary Ridgeway? Yeah, man, I, I like Ridgeway, so... What the I, fuck? I, I, I've got to ask, what does Vic do? He's always traveling with the five below thing. What do you do? He's a manager. Oh, he doesn't know man. where. Yeah. Oh, well, I have a five below near my house. It's like 20 miles away in Clarksville. I love that fucking store. It's badass. Dude, it is badass. They had a Ghostbusters shirt for $5 there. They had a bunch of great movies there for $5. I bought a copy yeah. of Titanic. Word. <laughs> Titanic. <laughs> That's what I watch it for. Just saying. Oh, uh, draw me like one of your French girls. <laughs> yeah, I'll sit through a three-hour movie for some tits. I don't care. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, so uh, let's see. What was I gonna say? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll talk Ridgeway next week, and hmm. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's going to be an interesting discussion because, uh, you know, we don't really have experts, so it's just going to be us bullshit. But I'll tell you what, we'll open up the phone so we can roundtable a talk about the most prolific serial killer in United States history. I want to keep saying that. Maybe not the most notorious, maybe not the most well-known, but the most prolific for sure that we know of. So uh, it be a good time, fellas. And uh, I guess on that note, we'll go ahead and sign off and talk next week, okay? All right, brothers. Later on, guys. Later. Later.